thank you very much. Uh, you probably know who the person sitting next to me is. Uh, I'm Michael Dobson. I'm director of the Shakespeare Institute, uh, of which Dame Janet Suzman is a fellow, uh, which is how come I get to share this exquisite bedroom in Trinidad uh, with her for, for the next few minutes. Uh, just in case anybody is tempted to use the bed or in case you know, either of us go to sleep in it, uh, we're also supplied with an alarm clock very considerately uh, at the taxpayer's expense. Uh, and uh, on this, I am to judge exactly 25 minutes of uh, scintillating conversation between us, uh, mainly about Janet's wonderful book. Uh, and then uh, people will be able to ask questions of their own uh, that I've been failing to ask for 25 minutes. Uh, and, uh, and after that, uh, Janet will uh, sign books. Uh, you know, there's really no limit to her talent. Um, because, uh, because I'm a theatre historian, uh, without in any way uh, wanting to imply that, that Janet is part of theatre history already, in that she's you know, working very hard, preparing a new production of Anthony Cleopatra and so on, um, it's very nice for me to get to talk to somebody whom I can reasonably, and, and indeed sometimes do, mention in the same sentence as you know, Sarah Siddons and Sarah Bernhardt and Ellen Terry and, uh, uh, and, and people like that. Um, in some ways, your book, um, Not Hamlet, Meditations on the Frail Position of Women in Drama, is sort of divided between celebrating the richness of the roles you have been given to play and to direct uh, and lamenting that there were some roles that just weren't wit written for women and that, therefore, you didn't get to play. Uh, Sarah Siddons partly, and Sarah Bernhardt, too, partly solved that problem by just playing Hamlet anyway. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever consider no, that? No, no, no. See, I mean, the thing is, I don't think women work in men's clothes at all. The other way around is not true. Men are brilliant at playing women, uh, especially the English. I'm allowed to say the English, not the British. Because, um, you know, the Scots have got their own skirts. <laughs> but I have noticed that Englishmen absolutely love dressing up as women. And we have that tradition with, uh, with Panto. Mm -hmm. And as a foreigner, it was a new introduction to me, this predilection for being kind of girl. No, not girls, women. The girl thing, like the chads of David Williams' group, came later, didn't they? But usually these are mature, bosomy, roller-netted roller Harridan people, <laughs> you know, that they like to mock. And I think brilliantly do so. But as to slimming up for Elsinore, no, no. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> but because well, I don't think it works. Mm. I truly yeah. don't. You just sort of contented yourself with directing it. Yes, yeah. that, well, that's... You, when you come across that play... I know this is absolutely universal. It is so unique in the canon, isn't it? Hmm. But it, I say not Hamlet because I somehow feel very strongly that there are no women's parts anywhere on earth which have the, have the kind of autonomy that Hamlet has to philosophise at leisure, to share his thoughts, his deepest feelings, his problems with us at leisure... And you will notice, I think, in all drama, and I stick to Shakespeare mainly because he writes the longest speeches, um, that basically women are not allowed to share their thoughts too much. Mm -hmm. And I've come to the conclusion that um, I think women are not taken seriously as philosophers. Mm 
as muses, as people whose thoughts are worth hearing at any length. So I, I take, for example, the difference between Richard II's long travel through his own brain about his hollow crown. Um, I don't know, you will know better than I how long those speeches are. But they, they are tremendous. They don't feel long because they're wonderful, but they are long. And the nearest thing to that is Cleopatra's very brief passing flick of, a, of, a, of her skirt against uh, the thought that her desolation does begin to make a better life. Mm. It is paltry to be Caesar. And it's about four or five lines long, and that's it. Yeah, the long speeches are about Antony. The long speeches are dreams about yeah. Antony, yeah. yes. But not yeah. about, not mm. that, that tremendously humorous, autonomous creature striding the world and finding his place in it. Mm -hmm. There aren't women's parts like that. And you think that's still true? You, ha you haven't found anyone writing you name wonderful words? Well, you name me one. No, 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 no. I'm not, you know, I'm, not, I'm not here to argue. I just wondered whether you know, you'd set... Well, if I secretly had, I would hug it to myself, but I, yeah. I don't think they exist. Yeah. Edwin Forrest, the first so-called great American tragedian, actually set up a competition saying he wanted a great tragedy written where the main character was an American and he'd pay <laughs> $500 to anybody who wrote it. Um, this unfortunately only gave the, wor the world uh, Metamora or The Last of the Wampanoags, which uh, is, not a, well a great, is not a great play. Um, but do you think there should be more? I mean, there's the Orange Prize for Fiction for Women. You know, there's, there's, there are prizes designed to cultivate literature in do different directions. Do you know, Michael, I don't think there shoulds or shouldn'ts, and I'm trying mm. not to make that book a moan. It really mm. isn't mm. a moan. No, no, it isn't. It's a sort mm. of late-in-life realisation that... Um, women have are, come down a notch, really, in the self-revelatory mm. um, stakes of dramatists, both male and female, because it's true to say that all the ro best roles for women are written by men. So it's not a question of, you know, feminist writing or anything like that. That would be a mm. crude way of looking at it. I don't look at it that way. Mm. Um, and the two best parts I know are Cleopatra and Hedda Gabler mm. for substance, for actual substance that you could, you know, you can suck juice out of them. Yeah. Really. And, and two amazingly contrasting parts. Um, you've played one and directed it. You've played the other one twice, once on telly, once on stage. I played it, those two both yeah. twice, yes. Yeah. yeah. And then you get the leisure to change your mind. Mm. But you know, times have changed because I remember wonderful Peggy Ashcroft playing Rosalind when she was 53. Mm. And you can't do that now, because people like the close-up, don't they? Mm -hmm. They like you to be the age that you mm. sort of ought to be, and that's because of movies. I think there's been mm. a big, big influence in the way we see parts through, through, through the camera, really. Yeah. Theatre critics occasionally lament that there aren't very many performers around now who are mainly known for their stage work, and, and you know, they tend to mention you as one of them. You know, as a stage actress who has also done, you know, st stuff on screen. Oh, do you, no, there are lots of them. True? Masses of them. Z zillions of, of actresses um, and actors who've, who've done both. But it's mm. one-way one traffic. If you've done the stage, you can do movies. Mm. But if you've done movies, it doesn't necessarily mean you can do the stage. Mm. Um, I mean, the best ones, like Meryl Streep, 
but she's a proper actress. She's done her stuff on stage. You know, yeah. you can see it in the precision and the the way she sustains a role and her intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, that's a very theatre trained mm. sort of talent, I think. Do you feel that there's a particular pattern to the career of a female actor that you felt you were fitting into? I mean, when you saw people like, you know, I mean, you, you, you had the good luck, I suppose, or good fortune and talent and so on to arrive in the RSC and get cast in a show with Peggy Ashcroft in it. Yeah. But she didn't notice me. I was like that. Yeah, I was, you presumably was a, noticed her. I was an ant. Yes, I did. And how? Mm. Well, that, that's one of the things is... I suppose as a young actor is looking up to. Mm. I mean, she was iconic, really. Mm -hmm. And I remember that first rehearsal. Peter Hall had 76 of us in that original company. And we crammed into what was then the conference hall, now the Swan Theatre. Mm. And don't mumble, he said. And we all mumbled, <laughs> except for Peggy. And I remember her voice to this day. She had already got that French accent for Margaret of Anjou. Is this the guys? Is this the government of England's Isle? You know, it was all woo. It's fantastic. Um, so she showed us up as weevils, really. <laughs> but do you see the trajectory of her career as something that you wanted to follow? Uh, she's someone who. I tell you in what sense she mm. was to me as a rather politicized animal, mm -hmm. which was inevitable being brought up in South Africa. Um, she, like, put her money where her mouth was. She was mm -hmm. a proper right-thinking, sort of socialist, lefty woman, mm -hmm. you know, as well as an actress. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, she, there was an integrity about her politics and her playing, which I found terrific. Mm. I thought she was terrific. Did you ever consult her about any of the roles that you were taking on that she'd played in the past? Yes, I did. And I had... I know what you're thinking of. I, <laughs> yes. There is a point in Antony and Cleopatra which uh, is, is a fascinating kind of crux point in my view, and I think it was in hers as well. And that is the scene where... Cleopatra's been flirting openly with Caesar's messenger, Phidias. She gives him her veins to kiss. It's that intimate. Um, and Antony comes in and sees this adulterous hand kiss. Favours, he says, and there's that huge scene. And then it, all explosion. Um, and... Then he, he has lost a battle and he, there's this next scene where he says, take this head, because Caesar wants his head. Take this head and send it to Caesar. And her line is, that head, my lord. That's it. That head, my lord. And I remember Peggy and I discussing it very, very carefully because she thought that those four words were the shortest love poem in the English language. That in that, that head, my lord, Cleopatra was pouring into it all the unspoken feelings she had of love for Antony. A generation or two later, there's me thinking, that head, my lord, has a much more cryptic, mm. mysterious comment about 
that head of his not working very well. <laughs> He'd lost it by then. He was making wrong judgments about Actium, about everything. He was misjudging his political career so crucially. And I think Cleopatra is no fool. And um, I, I have thought about this play very, very carefully. And I think we are doomed to Elizabeth Taylor's cleavage. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we think of Cleopatra. But she ain't like that. She's, she's, she's a pretty cunning politician and much cleverer than that. Far more like Shakespeare's Elizabeth I than uh, Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> a woman who spoke five languages, the only pharaoh we are told that managed to speak Demotic Egyptian so she could speak to the people if she chose to. Um, anyway, a very clever, highly educated woman brought up by her father. Um, so, yes, I think that's the glory of Shakespeare. There are always different ways of, of seeing things and doing things, as long as you're consistent. Mm -hmm. And I feel that there is a consistency in playing Cleopatra as, um, as somebody much less definable than somebody who's just completely, totally in love with Antony. I think she's much more veiled, much more cryptic, because historically we know more now. We know that she needed Antony. Whether need is the same as love, who am I to say? But I think he was obliterated with love for her. He was, I will turn it on his head, I think, I think he had a sort of fatal love for her. Mm. It's a tricky one since it's a play, we want the close-ups, we want to know what these characters are feeling from one moment to another, but it's also a play with all this world politics stuff in it. Yes. How did you cope with that when you acted it in the 70s and how, how have you addressed that now and have, have things changed in ways between the two? No, but the politics are there mm. and she, you've got to grab what interior stuff you can in Shakespeare. And Cleopatra comes up with small, compared with the Argo, mini, <laughs> compared with Hamlet, I was going to say Hamlet, uh, <laughs> mini little things like Herod of Jury says Alexis to her, would be scared of you if you were here. And she says that Herod's head I'll have, but how? when Antony is gone, through whom I'm at commanded. Well, if that's not a window into somebody thinking about their area of the world, <laughs> huh, then I don't know what is. <laughs> but it's there, and it shouldn't be just flipped away as if it's, that's what she's concentrating on, her crown. Mm. After all, in the Shakespeare canon, she's the only one who is actually on a throne, reigning. She's... Um, subject to Rome, but that doesn't mean that Rome doesn't need her very much, which yeah. it did. Yeah. But and the politics is there in the play, otherwise yeah. it's much less interesting. Yeah, and, and the suicide is sort of both. I mean, she insists on being crowned before killing herself. Oh, it's and not that. You must dress for the great event. <laughs> <laughs> of course you must. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's sort of a notch up from dinner, you think. Yeah, suicide. Oh, you're yeah. down playing Plutarch. He, did, he had a feast, she had, mm. the, the Last Supper, mm. didn't he? which would, I've often been tempted to do that. A sort of tempest scene where people bring on all the wines of the East. Yeah. 
and the Society of Inimitable Livers, where they have this She was, they did drink a lot, club. it's true. They did. They mm -hmm. wore rings, didn't they? Mm -hmm. Drinking rings. Mm. How do you render that in terms of what's practical to show on a stage, on a budget? Well, Michael, um... <laughs> You want to run down of our one, does <laughs> Well, I mean, how are you doing it this uh, time I around? think you have think? to mm. isolate the moments that matter to Cleopatra, that are revealing mm. of her nature. I think you have to make sure that Antony, in the grip of this fever of love, those lines like, would I have never seen her in the East, my pleasure lies, the way Inabarbus teases him about what he'll get for leaving her. Um, his, his, it's a very unmale thing, and I think it's really, really, you probably don't understand it, Michael. But yeah, I'm sure. men mm -hmm. find it difficult to understand being obliterated by love. But there have been Eloises and Abelards, and there have been Romeos and Juliets. Mm -hmm. But I think it's really difficult for actors to do what we actresses always have to do. <laughs> From the beginning of our careers to the end, we have to be obliterated by love at some point. <laughs> it has to be our unmanning. Like Phaedra, you know, you just can't exist without, without that, that slavery, really. Um, and I think in Antony, there's somebody who fights against it, but he can't. It's a hectic in his blood. Some, I can't remember who it was, but somebody once said that Antony was a terrible role for an actor because it was a role in which the actor had to fail. You had to be disappointed by the performance, same as everybody was disappointed by Antony's performance as a politician over the course of the action. Have you found it difficult to cast Antony's? I mean, you've got, I see you've got a different one <laughs> yes. this time round. No, you had is, Jeffrey well, that's Kassoon. because Jeffrey Kassoon was stolen from under my nose hmm. by the RSC. He's now playing Caesar, which is wonderful. Hmm. So I happily have now the wonderful Michael Pennington hmm. uh, to play Anthony. But it is a really difficult, mark my words, men don't like playing this part very much. Hmm. <laughs> they really, really don't. Hmm. But at a certain point in their lives, they have to... <laughs> Be brave and do it. Um, but I, you know, I have absolutely no doubt I'm going to enjoy Michael is such a great Shakespearean. He's going to give himself to that. And there is no shame in it. In <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's, no, there's no career obliteration. It's no, just it's they true. don't like actually doing yeah. it. Yeah, and he gets to go off to the bar for the whole of the last act because he's already dead by the time the, the, the no, interesting he, stuff No, he doesn't. Out. I can see where you come from. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's going to be very different having... You've got the same Cleopatra, you've got Kim Cattrall again. How different do you think those scenes are going to be with a different Antony? Well, of course they'll be different. I don't know how. That'll be my joy and surprise mm. in rehearsal. I mean, that's the great thing about You don't know what the chemistry will kick up, what mm. dust will be kicked up. But um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's such mm. fun. Re you're always here after saying that, how, what, how fun rehearsals are, doing the digging, finding mm. it all. And I think, in a way, ironically, it's rather wonderful that Kim has a different Anthony because she won't fall into any of the same <laughs> patterns that she might have. Mm. I doubt she would have, but that she might have if she'd had the same Anthony because 
you feel more comfortable with each other. So I think the, the freshness of having a new person there will, will, will be fun. Mm. Presumably, budgets being what they are, you'll be reusing most of the same costumes. So that it'll look... No, Michael, is going to look wonderful. Oh, no, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't already, you understand. Uh, new <laughs> frocks for everybody. Oh, good. <laughs> Lovely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you can put up those nice old-fashioned playbills and with all the new decorations, dresses, yes, etc. Yes, yes. Now, I can't tell about a production that isn't on yet. <laughs> we'll have another chat yeah. when it's on. Yeah, good. Um, it was on in the year it was on when you were in it with Richard Johnson. Do you feel that the play has changed or that you've changed much in coming back to it? Or does it, just, does it feel odd to be directing somebody in a role with which you're so closely identified yourself? Do you know, one of the nicest things you can do in this profession as you get older is how you say, pass on the baton. Mm. It's a wonderful feeling if you've had insights into something to help somebody else to get there, really. And what ha I think one of the reasons why Shakespeare goes on haunting one and goes on being the sort of springboard for so many other thoughts one, one has about the theatre and about parts is because it just doesn't stop. You don't stop discovering stuff. Mm. I don't know what he's done. His magic is just insane, really. It's so rich and plentiful. Uh, that you can just go on and on discovering. So when you say, what's the difference? I don't know, but I know thoughts about it have just lain somewhere in the back of my mm. head for a very long time. And when needed, out they come. I polish them a bit. I look at them and I realise, you know, that um, I, can, I can develop what I started to develop then mm. more. It's mm. not that you change, I think you go a bit deeper, mm. which is one of the joys of playing something twice. Mm. Although with Hedda, I must say, I, I changed my mind, and maybe because the first time I was on television, so that's, that's a more flippity affair, because you've got to do it quickly. Mm. So you have to come to instinctive conclusions quite, quite quickly, otherwise it's all gone. But on the stage, of course, you, you, you develop something night by night, mm. really. And I found that, whereas in the television I had imagined Hedda Gabler as a really superficial sort of a gal, somebody who just went from malice <laughs> to malice, like a little black butterfly. Mm. Um, on the stage, I much more got closer to her fears and her introspection about her own cowardice, her own a, a life longed for, hardly defined, but that she knew she wasn't having. So I think the, the genius of that play really is that there is so much subtext that you can dig into mm. and, and, and you change your view of it. There was a poem by Verlaine, which I, je m'en vais au vent mauvais, like a leaf tossed in a bad wind. So events seem to toss Hedda about. Things happen and she instinctively uh, doesn't make the most of them, but often the worst of them. Yeah, it's an extraordinary part and it's very, it's very odd to put it side by side with Cleopatra, who's sort of, 
grand and eloquent, speaks verse, has beautiful speeches to make. Hedda barely says anything. She just does nasty things in, in, in an You're interesting sequence. You're a great reductionist. Sequence. Well, no, I'm sorry, but, but uh, you know, she doesn't speak any poetry. No, she doesn't, you know, she, she doesn't. She makes an alcoholic go off and get drunk and then gives him a yes. gun to shoot himself with. Yes. I mean, it's not very nice. No, but it's, that, yeah. uh, it's not a bit nice. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but when was nice fascinating, I'd like no, to no, know. No, no, fair enough. Fair enough, but, but she's surprisingly oblique in the play that bears her name. I mean, it's all she subtext in a way. You've, you, you're left with far more of the work to do, if you like, in that you know, we don't get interior monologues saying, now here's why I'm doing this. You just have to, you, you had to put that together in between. Yes, but that's an actor's job. That's what yeah. we do. <laughs> we put it together inside us, even if mm. the words aren't there to say it. It's got to be, something's got to buoy the ship up. Mm. Um, and that's mm. this mysterious other life that mm. you you concoct, as, as you do with Shakespeare, from the text. It's what she says that makes you understand what she's feeling. Mm. That's for sure. Mm. But um, that's the only part I can think of that is consistently, through four acts, never off the stage. Her life mm. is un unravelling before you mm. from the word go. Mm. Um, so he entrusts his... his eponymous heroine with the weight of the play. Mm. That's for sure. Mm. But it shouldn't be weighty. It's, it, you know, it's quite, quite light, lightly balanced. At least with Joan of Arc, she gets voices telling her what to do. So yes. you know, that, that supplies you with, yes. with the odd uh, yes, thing to react to. And, does. And, and Shakespeare to doesn't around. supply the voices. Mm. The Shakespeare Joan. Yeah, she gets some fiends, but uh, not much in the way of voices. No, but um, I think that, I, th I have a feeling that that play defeated even Bernard Shaw, really. Mm. The, the kind of shiningness of the real Joan. It's interesting playing real people. You feel you owe them something because they're dead and they can't speak for themselves. And I've played quite a lot of people who actually walked the earth. Cleopatra is one of them, mm. Mm. actually. You don't, one tends to think of her in a fictional way, but no, she lived. Mm. Um, but I think Saint Joan um, and those voices, I could easily, as a total atheist, <laughs> I could totally believe, completely believe that uh, she heard and she mm. saw her visions and followed them. I, I don't think that's a difficulty. Yeah. I was very struck by what you said about when you were playing Joan and you had to work out what she would do with a pen when she has to sign a document with, with her oh, That mark. was a funny That's little incident. Yes, when she... The whole of the trial scene in Joan, of course, is verbatim in the archives in Paris. Mm. And um, Shaw did his homework about that. And he has a stage direction that says, Joan makes her mark. And playing it, you think, what's the mark? wonder what the mark is. And... The cliché one is, you know, kind of cross. And I was thinking one day, and then that subconscious nice dream state takes over sometimes, which is really lovely. And I thought, no, I know what it is, it's a circle. A sort of like that. <laughs> you know, just a, an ashamed mark on the, on, the, on the parchment. And so it proves to be. Because I think picking up a pen and make, you know, it's quite hard to make a nice cross. Um, mm. 
So I thought it was the emotion of her, sh of her, sh her shame would dictate what it was. Mm. But that's accidental. Yeah. yeah, you'd accidentally, genuinely forged her signature. I accidentally <laughs> forged her signature, that's yeah. right. <laughs> did, did you find that any sort of hangover from playing Joan Lapucelle in the Shakespeare version hung around when you were doing the show? I mean, that was your first part. Well, I, yes, it made yeah. me scruffier as Joan. <laughs> I th you know, that wonderful statue of her in Reims, when she's astride a horse in her shining armour. We did have a wonderful scene for the BBC television of that Joan. Um, and we were taken on some down somewhere with the wind blowing and Keith Baxter playing Dunois and these film horses. And we had to ride over a hill towards Orléans. You know, banners streaming. It was all very emotional and wonderful. And I had a horse called Kate, <laughs> who took an instant dislike to and uh, her ears were flat like this. And, and at one point, she turned around, these yellow teeth tried to bite my, my little chain-mailed foot. <laughs> like this. Anyway, so, to Orléans, cried mm. Dunois. And we, over the hill like this, except Kate, I, she saw two trees on the horizon <laughs> over there, and she went straight for the ears flat like this mane streaming, and me hanging on like mad. Like, and Keith went in the opposite direction. <laughs> so all I heard were these shrieks of laughter from the film guys on their dolly, because they could not... Yeah. They couldn't film it. Mm. I said that was disastrous, yeah. but yeah. Uh, <laughs> we had to do it all again. So that's why you never made many westerns. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, such a, <laughs> that's what why a loss. The, that's yeah. exactly yeah, right. Exactly. I was not to be trusted on a horse. <laughs> <laughs> thanks to everyone for coming, and especially uh, thanks to Dame Janet for coming. <laughs>